The recent attacks in Israel have left us all shaken. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to respond? The truth is, this is hardly the first time the Jewish people have been in crisis. In this class, we look for a Jewish response to Israel under attack. As always, please like and share this podcast, leave us a question, or leave a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Meth. Israel under attack, a Jewish response. Many people right now, as we gather here today, there are many people not in this room playing football. Today is football Sunday, after after all. And I imagine in locker rooms around the country, there are teams getting ready. Well, the first game started, but for the the one o'clock game, there are teams getting right, gathering themselves together in opposing locker rooms in different stadiums. Confident, we're going to win. We are going to win with total confidence, our football team, we're good, we're talented, we're determined, and they believe it. They're passionate. We're gonna win this fight. But the truth is, one of those teams is gonna win, one of those teams is gonna lose. I don't know who my Redskins are playing this week. Commanders, whatever they're called. Who are they playing, anyone know? Atlanta. So, what's the guy, what's their quarterback? Sam Howell thinks he's gonna win. Who, I don't even know who the quarterback is in Atlanta these days. Matty Ice has been gone for years, right? Who's their quarterback? They got some new guy, right? He thinks they're going to win. Confident. And they really believe it with all their passion. Yet we know one team will win, one team will lose. Maybe they'll tie. But someone's going to win and someone's going to lose. Those last eight, nine days has been exceedingly difficult for Klal Yisrael, for the Jewish people around the world. And we've been saying proudly, Am Yisrael Chai, Jewish people, we're not going anywhere. We're going to win. We're going to win. And I was thinking about it. I'm wondering if there's a brunch and learn happening somewhere in the United States of America. A brunch and learn of a bunch of pro-Palestinians. And there's, you know, Mickey on the waffles. There's Jonathan on the eggs. And there's coffee. And the imam or whomever it is, is giving the same speech. We're going to win. And by the way, I believe that they believe it. They believe it. So why are we confident? Let's be honest for a second. In a moment of real honesty, we're so confident. The good guys are going to win. The bad guys are going to lose. Am Yisrael Chai. How do you know? It's because you really believe it? Guess what? In those football locker rooms, they believe it. 50% of the teams are going to lose. You could believe it. You can talk yourself into it. But how do you know it? We're making stuff up. My favorite of my favorite quotes. Ideas we've shared that I would just like to read. You've probably heard them before, but I sort of always feel that moments of crisis, moments of difficulty, we've got to go back to our basics. We've got to go back to what are our core beliefs. Famously, over 300 years ago, King Louis XIV of France asked Blaise Pascal, the great Christian philosopher, to give him proof of God. Pascal answered, why the Jews, your majesty? The Jews. Mark Twain, his famous essay concerning the Jews. You've probably heard it. My grandmother, a blessed memory, a Holocaust survivor, used to keep a little cutout of this quote in a frame, small little frame in the corner of her house. If the, statist- if the statistics are right, the Jews constitute but 1% of the human race. It suggests a nebulous dim puff of a stardust lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. Properly, the Jew ought hardly be heard of, but he is heard, has always been heard of. He is as prominent on the planet as any other people, and his commercial importance is extravagantly out of proportion of the smallness of his bulk. 
His contributions to the world's list of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, and abstruse learning are also way out of proportion to the weakness of his numbers. He has made a marvelous fight in the world in all the ages and has done it with his hands tied behind him. He could be vain of himself he could, and could be excused for it. The Egyptian, the Babylonian, the Persian rose, filled the planet with the sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and Roman followed and made a vast noise and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out and they sit in the twilight now or have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he has always been, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. Twain so famously ends, all things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret to his immortality? One of my favorite authors, Paul Johnson, just passed away a couple years ago, two years ago. His great book, which I don't recommend. I mean, I do recommend it, but his great book, The History of the Jews, I recommend it, but not your first book. If you want to read more about Jewish history, that should be your fourth or fifth book that you read. It's a great book. In his introduction, he asks, why am I writing this book? He's a Christian guy who lives in Ireland. Why is he writing a book about the history of the Jews? And he offers four explanations, and number four, I would like to share with you. Finally, the book gave me a chance to reconsider objectively in the light of a study covering nearly 4,000 years, the most intractable of all human questions. What are we on earth for? Is history merely a series of events whose sum is meaningless? Is there no fundamental moral difference between the history of of the human race and the history, say, of ants? Or is there a providential plan of which we are, however humbly, the agents? No people has ever insisted more firmly than the Jews that history has a purpose and and humanity a destiny. At a very early stage in their collective existence, they believed they had detected a divine scheme for the human race, of which their own society was to be a pilot. They worked out their role in immense detail. They clung to it with heroic persistence in the face of savage suffering. Many of them still believe it. Others transmuted it into other endeavors to raise our condition by purely human means. The Jewish vision became the prototype for many similar grand designs for humanity, both divine and man-made. The Jews, therefore, stand right at the center of the perennial attempt to give human life the dignity of a purpose. Do their own history suggest that such attempts are making, are worth making? Does it reveal their essential futility? The account that follows in his book, result of my own inquiry, will I hope help its readers to answer the questions for themselves. One of the most important passages, which I think requires, we've shared it many times in, in our kolel here, but I think it's something we need to talk about again, internalize it on an even deeper level. Famous passage Rabbi Yaakov Amdin writing in the 1600s in his introduction to his commentary on the Siddur. It's often quoted, but I don't think it's fully understood. His brilliant observation. He says, and it's in the Hebrew, so I'm going to try to translate it as good as I can. And if I'm not, I'm making stuff up. That's all right. No, I'm sorry. Kola umos hakadmonos haatsumos. All the great nations that have come before. Avad zechram, they're lost. Their intellect, it's gone. Their protective shade, they're gone. But us, we cling to God. We're alive today. 
We're not missing despite a tremendously long exile. We're not missing our Torah, it's still there. 100%. Our Torah, still there. Still studying the same dusty books. 2,000 years later, 3,000 years later. The hand of Father Time has not impacted us. We have not been destroyed. What's the sharp philosopher? What's he to say about that? Is this by happen chance? Happenstance? Is this a mistake that we survive? All things are immortal, says Twain, but the Jew. And then Rabbi Emden says so powerfully, Chai Nafshi, I take an oath. When I contemplate Jewish survival, the fact that here we are, Godlu Etzli Yosser Mikol Nisim Viniflos is greater. When I contemplate the fact that we as Jews, and he's writing, by the way, in the 1600s, he didn't see the Holocaust. And he says, Chai Nafshi, I'm telling you, when I contemplate the miracle of Jewish survival, when you think about it, people want to know why I love history, why I study history. Think about it. When you really internalize our story, says Rabbi Emden, Yoser, it's more impressive. It's more miraculous. It's more divine. Yoser, me call Nisim v'neflos, she'asa Hashem yisparach l'avaseinu v'mitzrayim. Uba midbar uba eretz Yisrael. If you're being honest and you really contemplate Jewish survival, it's a greater miracle than God splitting the sea, than the ten plagues, all the miracles, the man, the what, all the miracles of Jews in Egypt, the Exodus, and the land of Israel. A greater miracle than all of that. Can you imagine splitting the sea? Says Rabbi Amdin, nothing. It's a zero. When we compare it to the fact that us as Jews, here we are today. The And as long as the exile and our Dark Gullus, the longer it goes, it becomes an even greater miracle. Every year that goes by, and we're still here, just magnifies, amplifies that great nace, that great miracle. It's a testimony, it bears witness to God's amazing strength. Beautiful, powerful, inspiring. But I'm a cynic, or I'm a skeptic, I always say. I'm not a cynic, I'm a skeptic. I've always highlighted, that's beautiful, Rabbi Emden. It's unlikely. Twain, all the other nations have come and gone. The Jews, yes, it's highly improbable. Did anyone win the Powerball last night? Did it, is it still going? Did someone win it? Someone won it? California. What was it? It was like 1.7 I saw. 1.7 billion. If any of you won it, please don't forget your friends here. If you held that winning ticket, that Powerball, what are the odds of winning? They said it was something like one out of like $232 million, something like that. One out of 232 million people. A lot more than that dollars. You had virtually no chance of winning it. Let's say you're holding on to that winning ticket. And if you are, please see me after this, after this point. Imagine you're holding that ticket. I'm sure the emotions, and you appreciate, your life has changed. And you say, you come over to me, and you make a nice donation to Kolel, thank you very much. And then you say, Rabbi, it's a miracle. I won the lottery. It's a miracle. What are the odds? I'll tell you the odds. One out of 232 million. It's a miracle. 
If we were being honest, would we say it's a miracle? I'd say it's not a miracle, it's improbable. And if I was a skeptic, I would say, look, it's, you're very fortunate, you're very lucky, and you should be really grateful, but that's not a miracle. It's just highly improbable. Someone had to win that lottery eventually. It's not a miracle, it's statistics. Things happen, someone's gonna win it eventually. So Rabbi Meth being the skeptic, I go and I say, Rabbi Emden, no miracle. Not a miracle. It's improbable, I will grant you that. The fact that we are here today is highly improbable. Highly improbable things happen. Someone won the lottery last night. I challenge, it's no miracle, number one. Number two, just because a highly improbable thing has happened for the last 2,000 years, that is no guarantee that this war that's happening today in Israel doesn't, the past performance does not guarantee future results. So yes, we've been around for a long time. Yes, we've survived a lot of difficult odds. But doesn't that, if anything, mean probably not a good idea to bet on the Jews? If, right, has our luck run out? I've always found, for me personally, probably the most inspiring verse in the entire Torah, to me at least. And a lot of my core belief really hinges on this verse to some degree. Leviticus, the Tochacha, chapter 26, verse 42, says my notes. Leviticus 26 is one of the most difficult chapters in the entire Torah to read. It's called the Tochacha, the portion of rebuke. God talks about Jews don't follow what I command mitzvahs. We don't embrace our Judaism. We don't cling to the Torah. It's a list of curses, horrific things that will befall the Jewish people. Tragedies, destruction, exiles, calamities, catastrophes. Indeed, the commentaries, Rabban, I direct you to Rabban. They go through it and they basically highlight that Leviticus 26 is sadly the story of Jewish history. I mean, read it. It is the story of our people. Exiles, calamities, enemies, persecution. It is to the verse. It is the story of Judaism. And then there's a verse, the end, towards the end of that difficult, difficult chapter, where God says, zos, despite all of these calamities, despite all of the catastrophe." You're going to be the land of your enemies. I'm not going to be disgusted with them, and I'm not going to totally banish them. I will never, ever eradicate the covenant that I've made with them. For I am the Lord their God. The lowest point, of the lowest points in Jewish history, sin of the golden calf. Sin of the golden calf. God says, I'm wiping out the Jews. It's an unimaginable sin. They've lost their right to exist. And Moses, we know, goes up to the mountain. He prays to God. And he prays for mercy. He prays for Rahmanus. He asks God for forgiveness. We know the whole story in Yom Kippur. And the Jews are forgiven. But not only are the Jews forgiven. But the verse says, Hine anochi kores bris. I am going to make a covenant with the Jewish people. Neged kol amcha as Before all the nations of the world, I will do wonders. Asher lo nivru b'chal arts b'chal ha'gayim. Has never been a, you've never seen a, a covenant like this before. And says, Rabbi, Rabbi Naftali to you to Berlin, he's really echoing the words of 
Many of the earlier commentaries, Rabag says a very similar idea. Let me, let me quote first Rabag. This covenant in front of all the nations of the world. All the nations of the world. They come and go. Eventually it's going to be declared on them destruction. When there is a negative decree against any nation in the world, it's it, they're over. It's not true with the Jewish people. Says Rabbi, Rabbi Berlin, this is a covenant for all generations and for eternity. And God made a covenant with the Jewish people that's opposite what he's done with other nations. This is the word of God. Whenever you have a scenario where the Jewish people find themselves in danger, Close to being wiped out. I want you to know I'll perform miracles. There will be a survival of that nation. Something that's never happened with all the nations of the world. You know, it's one thing to win the lottery. That's improbable. Highly unlikely. Lucky. But I always say, imagine if on Friday, you go into the quickie mart, to buy your ticket. And I go to you and I say, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you the winning numbers. Here are the winning numbers. I suggest you, you, you know, fill that in. And you do. And you hit the lotto. Is that improbable? Is that just, wow, you got lucky. When you predict, when you can tell me something that's one out of 232 million is going to happen, that's not just improbable. That's a miracle. It's one thing if something that unusual happens. But if I call it, I predict it, I forecast it, I tell you it is going to happen, that is miraculous. When we read the portion of the Tochacha, the portion of the rebuke in the Torah, it outlines the Jews are going to suffer and be beat up and bruised and killed and tortured. The laws of history say we shouldn't survive each one of those episodes. We should have been wiped out. But the very next verse says, despite that, afgamzos, despite all of these hardships, I want you to know the Jewish people are eternal. We're not going to go away. We're going to ultimately in the long run win. That's what Rabbi Emden, I believe, is telling us. When he says, nafshi, I'm telling you, it's a greater miracle than the splitting of the sea. It's one thing for us to survive. It's one thing for us to still be here, despite the fact that there have been so many calamities. And every opportunity for us to go away. It's unlikely. But it's written right there in the Torah. It says it's going to happen. It says we're going to be persecuted. It says it's going to be difficult. But the verse also says, <laughs> Despite the fact that you're going to be in the land of your enemies. The verse precedes that. I will remember the covenant that I made with Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. There might be a brunch and learn somewhere in the country with a bunch of people rooting for the other team. We have a miracle. We have a guarantee. It's in our Torah. We're going to win. We're going to win. That's not our concern. I believe that with every fiber of my being. And we all need to remind ourselves what are our core beliefs during this difficult time. One of the things, just to maybe give us a little bit, some inspiration, things that we should be focusing on. <clears throat> And I want to echo an idea 
I think it's so important. Rabbi Golden mentioned it yesterday, and it really struck me. You know, we talk about the Jewish exile. We talk about, this is nothing new. We've had enemies who've tried to wipe us out. We've, we spoke about it last week. You know, my, my Passover, I was funny, I was on the phone with my sister. She was asking, how am I doing? What are we doing? You know, I'm sure everyone's been talking to their family and loved ones and comparing notes and emotions and this and that. And she said the exact same thing that I, I shared with the group last week. I said, we just went back to our childhood. We grew up at the Passover Seder reading that it's God's covenant. That's what's kept us alive. Despite the fact that every single generation, they rise up to destroy us. And as a child, even as a young adult, every Passover, we would recite that and sing that with my grandparents who were all Auschwitz survivors and they would share their stories of survival and their stories of tragedy. And from the youngest of ages, at least I grew up with this as part of my DNA. I know we're going to win. That is in my blood. I've seen horrors. I know we're not going away. And Rabbi Goldman highlighted yesterday at the explanatory service. It really moved me. Now we've had, Every we've been attacked, we've been persecuted. That's the, that's the norm. That's not the exception. That's the rule. And sometimes, you know, we live, thank God, in the United States of America, we live with relative safety and security. You know, people say when anti-Semitism is on the rise, people think, oh my God, this is what, what Germany was like in the 30s. You have no idea if you think that you have not been studying history. I'm sorry. Yes, it's worrisome that anti-Semitism is on the rise, but thank God. This is nothing. This isn't one one-thousandth of one-thousandth percent of the sorrows, of the tragedies and suffering that our ancestors had to, go, had, to, had to go through. Rabbi Goldman highlighted, we've got our friends at Metro parked outside of our colo for the last week, keeping us safe. Just, this is an objective statement. Go take a survey of Jewish history. Usually when there are cops parked out in front of kolels, that's that was a sign to go into hiding because the police have come to kill you. 99 times out of 100 in the scope of the last 2,000 years of Jewish history. You don't want the cops parked outside of your shul. That's not a good thing. And here, here we are. We take it for granted. Isn't that nice? Metro's here. The verse in Mishlei says, Someone who's ingrateful. Someone who doesn't have gratitude and appreciation. Evil will not live, will not leave your house. If you repay kindness with evil, someone does something good to you and you don't do something good back in return, evil will befall you. Bag explains, he says, this is appropriate. This is for two reasons, he says. Number one, one is a very practical thing. If you're not appreciative to the cop who's in front of you and you don't give him some of the eggs and the, the waffles, I did. <laughs> I got to say, the metro officers who've been coming here are the best. They've been getting fed. I gave him the guy who came yesterday. I come out with chalin. He's like, what is this? I said, it's chalin. He said, what's that? I said, you have to say it before I give it to you. He says, chalin. I said, he says, what is it? I said, it's Jewish soul food. He's like, Jewish soul food. I like it. We had it on the, on the holiday in Shemini Atzeres. So, I don't know, on, on someone's Torah, we had, you know, stuffed cabbage. So how do you say stuffed, what? how did Jews say stuffed cabbage? There you go, chalopchis. That's a nice Yiddish word. I go to the cup, I gave him some of the stuffed cabbage. I said, same thing. I said, it's Jewish soul food. Have some of it. It's chalopchis, but I'm not giving it to you until you say it. He said, chalopchis. I said, that's good enough. Enjoy. 
If we're not kind to the people who do good to us, guess what, says Rabag? They're not going to want to come back and help you out. You're not appreciative. Someone does you a favor and you're ingrateful. Guess what? They're not going to want to help you out a second time. You don't do good. If you don't show, express your gratitude to someone who's done good for you, it's not going to be great. They're not going to help you out. They see you're ungrateful. Next time you're in trouble, it's not going to go away. You're not going to get out of trouble. The cop's not going to want to come back. Terrific. So we have to have appreciation, gratitude, say thank you to the local, to the cops. Fantastic. By the way, that's why you want to know why am I a little bit, I'm not ashamed, I'm a patriot, I appreciate the United States of America. Why? Got to have gratitude. This is not the norm of Jewish history. You are living in, you are the point, you're the one percenters of Jewish history. To be live today in the United States of America, it's, what you're, it's not the norm. However, there's a second, probably more important reason, definitely more important reason. It's a punishment. If you're ingrateful, it's befitting that you get punishment. Punished from God. We're holding back from all the good. Basically, he goes on, apologize. He goes on to explain if we're not appreciative of God, of the things that God has done for us, we're not worthy of God's protection. If we're ingrateful to all the good that's around us, God says, okay, why do I need to help you out? And Goldman highlighted it. Was, I thought it was so profound. He said, here we are. You know, we sort of take our freedoms in the United States. I think all of us, myself included, take it for granted. This is the norm. We take the fact that we have Israel. Right? Israel is a country, right? We complain, you know how expensive a flight is to get to Israel and, and then everyone's aggressive and the shawarma was burnt and the, 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 the tahino was too spicy and you can't find, right? And everyone in Israel is aggressive and all that stuff. You do realize your great-grandparents would have given their left arm to be able to go to Israel. You do realize many of us in this room, in our own lifetimes, there were times you weren't allowed to go to the Kotel, to the Western Wall. It was illegal. If you would go there, you would have been killed. The fact that there's a state of Israel, we like take it for granted. This is one of the greatest chasadim, the greatest ch- kindnesses. Like take it for granted that there's a state of Israel. That's not a thing. Majority of Jewish history, last 2,000 years, Israel was a dream. It was a concept. It was a theoretical. For us, it's an expensive airfare. And maybe one of the things that we can do, you know, for safety and protection of our of Achenu Beis Yisrael, our brothers and sisters, I am, I'm not sure why, but I know when I've been, the last week, I've been trying to pray every day with extra focus, extra kavana during my Shemona Esrei, during my prayers. Certainly the prayer of Sim Shalom Tova Vracha, I've been, you know, with as much emotion as I can muster up to pray for peace around the world in Israel. And for some reason, the prayer of Modim, expressing, expressing our gratitude to God, for some reason, I haven't been able to put my finger on it. Some reason of all weeks, this has been the week where it's like, it's really spoken to me. Like, I'm going to be appreciative of all that. I'm not going to take it for granted. And maybe, I don't know, maybe one of the reasons, I, I don't know why we don't know God's plans. I don't know why this war broke out. But maybe it should be a wake-up call emotionally for us to be appreciative of all of God's kindnesses. Be appreciative of the cop over there, of course. But be appreciative that God was the one who enabled and allowed the circumstances that that cop can be there. 
Be appreciative of the land of Israel, but be appreciative of God to give us the land of Israel. Don't take things for granted. I want to end with a, one last idea. Story of a friend of mine passed away a couple years ago. You ever have a friend who's like 25 years older than you? And like, I guess as you get older, it becomes less weird, right? But when you're like 18 and you have a friend who's like in his late 40s, it's kind of early 50s, it's like a little strange. So one of the first experiences I ever had of like building like a real friendship, someone who I, I really considered and, and do consider a friend who is significantly older than me. I met him when I, after I graduated high school, I studied in yeshiva in Israel. Went to Israel, I was there for two years. And in that yeshiva, there was a fellow who used to study there half the day. His name was Paul. We go, remember Paul? Bless memory. Now, me and Paul struck up a friendship. I'll tell you why. I mean, first of all, I just, he was a nice guy, and I like to think I'm a nice guy. I don't know. We connected. But honestly, kind of the reason, I was 6,000 miles away from home. You know, it was the first time in my life I was far away from home. And it's, it's, you get a little homesick. Paul is from Richmond, Virginia. He had the most beautiful Virginia accent. You know that if you're from my little neck of the woods, I'm from Maryland, Maryland, Virginia, right there. Maryland, us Marylanders don't really, at least Southern Maryland, kind of have a neutral accent, but Virginia is like my first cousin. And whenever I would talk to Paul and I would hear his, he was a loving, caring man. And whenever I would hear his accent, he reminded me of home. So I drew a lot of comfort from that. So I love talking to Paul. But Paul had an amazing story. And I got a picture of Paul. I'm not going to show it to you, but I'll show it to you. But you can't make fun of me. This is a picture of me and Paul on a trip. I'm a little kid over there. That's Paul over there. I dug for them. And I've, I'm like, I, gotta find, I know I have a picture of Paul somewhere. He passed away in, in, I think, 2016, 2017. That's me and Paul up in the Golan. Paul did not grow up observant. He was a Jewish guy. Grew up in a prominent family in Richmond. Had strong Jewish identity. But not, not observant at all. Never wore a yarmulke. That wasn't his thing. He went to University of Virginia. Got his JD. He, very learned, very successful guy. And he was fascinated with the land of Israel. Back up for a second. If I told you, Arab enemies invade Israel. Caught Israel off guard on a, one of the holiest days of the year. Right? History doesn't repeat itself, says Twain. But it sure does rhyme. That's the story of what just happened. That's also the story, as you can well know, though many of in this room were there to watch it. That's the story of the Yom Kippur War. If you remember, that's the story of the Yom Kippur War. Israel, Kochi votes Israel grew complacent, a little arrogant. Our, the IDF will protect us, will save us. And we were totally caught off guard, invaded by Egypt, invaded by Syria. And it was a horrific, horrific period. And Jewish, again, before my time. But speaking, some of you in this room were there, and I've spoken to the people who are brave soldiers who fought in that war. It was a low point in Jewish history. In modern Jewish history, it may have been the lowest point. And, thank God, the story ended well. We were able to drive back our enemies. We actually ended up territorially in a better place than we started off. And after a couple of weeks, the war ended. The United States came in, saved the day. Really, it was all God. <clears throat> Terrific. After the war, after the Yom Kippur War in 73 and 74, Israel was demoralized. Because, think about it, after 67, Israel was so mighty, we recaptured the Kotel, we recaptured so much land, we reunified Jerusalem, and we're, we're flying high. And then in 73, we were caught off guard. It was demoralizing. And particularly for the soldiers. And Paul 
totally non-observant fellow. He was brought in. He was actually made a captain by the IDF to try to raise morale. The IDF understood and recognized soldiers. The spirits and morale was low. So they brought Paul in to try to develop some kind of program. I want to read an article that was published not too long ago about my friend Paul. You'll indulge me as I read from this. The moving force behind the IDF program was Paul, his name was Paul Laster. It was Paul Laster, a courtly southerner from a socially prominent Richmond, Virginia family. Paul's father was the first Jewish judge in Virginia. Unlike most of the early other established Richmond Jewish families, however, the Lasters had not yet succumbed to assimilation. In 67, Paul had just completed his legal studies at the University of Virginia and decided to spend a year in Israel before taking up the practice of law. He arrived in the midst of the euphoria surrounding Israel's victory at the Six-Day War and soon decided to stay. He began to think a great deal about his own personal relationship with the Jewish people and to its history. Eventually, he went to work for the Jewish agency, preparing emissaries to the English-speaking countries. He returned to the United States, earned a degree. Fine. After the Yom Kippur War, he knew it was time to return to Israel. Even then, he found frustrating the apathy of American Jewish university students as Israel's fate hung in the balance. The widespread national depression following the successful Arab surprise attack at the start of the Yom Kippur War caused the army to worry about a severe problem of morale in the ranks. Emigration jumped sharply. People were leaving Israel. Paul came to the attention of the IDF as a result of his earlier lecturing on Jewish identity. Typically, he would begin his lectures by telling his Israeli audience that he was returning home to America. You are Israelis, and I'm an American Jew, he would say as a means of riling up his listeners. What does Israel have to do with me? The message that he wanted to drive home was that being Jewish must mean something more than just living in Israel, especially if Israel sought to maintain claims on the loyalty of Jews around the world. Terrific. Paul was invited to become an educational officer with the rank of captain. The IDF then had a three-week final course for its new officers. The last week of the course included discussion of a variety of issues. Paul took, look, took one look at the curriculum and told his bosses that it was overloaded and would not address the morale problem the IDF. Our whole curriculum with the IDF, it wasn't going to do anything. To do that, it would be necessary to focus on Jewish identity. Paul's not an observant Jew at this point. Totally unobservant. He prepared a program around the following questions. Who am I as a Jew? What is my relationship to the Jewish people, particularly the Jews of diaspora? What is my relationship to Jewish culture, to Jewish religion? To measure the effectiveness of, the course, of this course, Paul had the participants fill in questionnaires about whether they would choose to be born again as a Jew and also on their basic Jewish knowledge. Listen to this. Around a third, these are soldiers fight, risking their lives in the IDF. Around a third of them responded that they would not choose to be born again as Jews if they could choose. Terrifying. The respondents were all shaken by their lack of knowledge of the basic tenets and practices of Judaism. And then Paul had his little course. By the end of the course, 90% of the participants expressed an interest in participating in a course on Judaism, even if it meant giving up their own vacation days. In time, Paul realized that yeshivas would be the logical place to look for information on the essence of Jewish identity. He began bringing groups to Rabbi Baruch Horowitz's Dvar Yishlaim Yeshiva and later to Or Sameach. After the first visit to Dvar Yishlaim, he once told a reporter for Jewish Life magazine, I couldn't tear them away. They were singing and dancing wildly. And Paul, totally not observant, he began this program of speaking. I remember him, he used to tell me, these were like high-ranking people. These were, he said, he used to tell me, these were the pilots he used to tell me it used to cost about a million dollars or a million shekel, I don't know, to train a helicopter pilot. 
And he was just doing his job, Paul was, trying to inspire and give everyone more morality. He had this program. Everyone reflect on your Jewish identity. And he realized, like, he built this relationship with Or Sameach and other yeshivas. And these guys began to study Torah and study their Judaism. And it worked. And these guys caught fire. And eventually, a lot of them dropped out of the IDF. And the IDF eventually didn't like them. And the program was wildly successful. It actually became too successful. And the IDF said, oh... We invested all this money in these soldiers. Like, we, we want to make sure that... They eventually canned the program. And here Paul had gotten all these soldiers basically reconnected to their Judaism. They all, a lot, these guys became observant. These guys had lived their whole lives fighting for the IDF, losing loved ones in wars, having no idea what their Judaism was about. So Paul had the brilliant, obvious idea. Let's study what this thing is about. Let's study our ancestry. Let's study our Torah. Let's actually figure out why are we dying? What are we fighting for? Why do we care? And he started doing that. He himself wasn't even observant. And people became more and more connected to his Judaism. Eventually he had to can the program. He ended up working then for Or Sameach, not an observant Jew. He ended up working for Or Sameach. And, you know, instead of working for the IDF, he basically did the same thing. Instead of working for the, for the IDF, he worked for Or Sameach. And he got people more inspired, more connected to their, to their Judaism. Eventually, he decided, like, maybe I should really look inwards. Like, if this thing is working, maybe I should think about it. Eventually, he became more inspired, more connected to his Judaism. And uh, make a long story short, he decided he was going to study Torah a little bit and be connected. And he ended up finding, he, he got inspired by my Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Hanif Leibowitz. And he decided, uh, he'll, he just pulled up a chair in Yeshiva Chavetz Chaim in Jerusalem, in Sanhedrin Marchavet. And he stayed in that chair for 31 years. Amazing story. He was, he was an amazing person. I loved Paul. I love Paul. A close friend of mine. And I, uh, I think about him every now and again. I get, I get a little teary thinking about Paul and his long beard and southern accent. I think Paul's message and Paul's story is so apropos, so appropriate for today. Now here we've got soldiers. 1,200, 1,300 Israelis died. Why? Can we answer that question fundamentally? We're sending soldiers in to grave peril. Why? To protect a little slice of land in some godforsaken place? Why do we care about that? Why should the soldiers care about that? Why should we support it? If we don't believe in the Torah, if we don't believe in God, if we don't believe in our core values, then the answer is it's a mistake. They should leave. Everyone go home. And you have no guarantee that we're going to win. The only reason that I believe we're going to win and the only reason why it's worth sacrificing the lives of our children to protect the land of Israel is because I believe in the message contained in the Torah. I believe, yes, we are the Amanivchar. God gave us a special mandate. God gave us a special heritage. We're not just like any other nation. But if we're not living our lives, if we're not internalizing the message that Paul gave his whole life to teach Israeli soldiers, that that we are a special nation because of our Torah, because of our Judaism, because what's the content, what's the message behind it? If we're just going to live our lives, if we just want to be like as Jeremiah says, we just want to be like any other nation in the world. Sometimes it says, Jews, it's all we want to be. Just leave us alone. Let's just be like any other nation in the world. Guess what? Any other nation in the world should have and would have been wiped out. We're not like any other nation in the world for one reason, because we have the Torah. And maybe, maybe one of the messages God is trying to tell us, all of us, is the message that my friend Paul of blessed memory was able to hear in 73. And that message is, is that, guys, we need to do better. We need to make the Torah and our Judaism a little bit more, deeper part of who we are. 
And Be'ezer Hashem, please God, if we internalize that message, if we connect with our Torah and we connect with our sacred heritage, again, we'll be Zoha, we'll merit to see that continuation of that great miracle that Rabbi Emden talks about. Chai I believe it. The greatest miracle. We're going to win. Pleasant Hashem. If we connect to our Torah, we connect to our Judaism, it should be a zachos, it should be a merit for protection, for achenu beis Israel, for our brothers and sisters, hanasunim mitzaro b'shivya, who find themselves in the most difficult of situations. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast, or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.